0: recorded live scuba obsessed weekly podcast we talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear places to dive and scuba news Scoob obsessed episode 223 was recorded live december 11th 2014 welcome back to scuba obsessed i'm darren Gilson coming to you from the west side of the great state of Michigan, where it still isn't hard water, but it's getting darn close. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you.
0: And we also have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim?
2: Just great, thank you.
0: And we are getting into that post-Thanksgiving holiday season. Have you guys uh, ready for it, or...? Well, all
1: the leftovers are gone, so I'm ready for food, yes.
0: (laughs) The food. How about you, Jim? Oh,
2: I'm not quite ready for it, but I'll get there.
0: Yeah, we're... We're getting ready for it. We, we're about as ready as we could hope for. There's one year we were ready like months in advance and that was odd, but this year we got the decorations up. We've got about, we're about halfway done with the shopping. I'd like to thank everybody who's tuned in. We have, uh, the chat room going. So if you ever want to come and join us in the chat room, you can go to our Facebook page or scubaobsessed.com and click over to talk to you. The show number is 73759 and you can chat with us during the show. The first article that we have coming up is uh, was was provided to us uh, by Rod down in New Zealand. Let's see, did I say his name wrong? I'm Always worried about that. Oh, now nah, I'm all out of order.
1: Well, while you're looking to get an order, and you're Rod, talking
0: Rod, yeah, that's it's Rod.
1: I, I sent you a uh, another link uh-huh. to the ocean plastics you're talking about. Yes. Not to say your link is not good, but it's it's a nice one because it shows some pictures of uh, what well, I thought was interesting is. The flow patterns of the lake, of the oceans and where the debris is. Mm-hmm. It has a really neat picture of a uh, rainbow runner, which is a fish. They've already cut it open and skinned it to show you what they got out of its stomach. That's pretty cool.
0: Okay. Well, what, what Max referring to, and we'll, we'll skip to that one. We'll come back to the one that Rod had. But that's the uh, the study. It was uh, in the Huffington Post. They reported on it. And we've got a couple of them. The first one, this this had to be, this was just released this week. So it says, study shows 27,000 tons, I said 27, 270,000 tons of plastic float in the ocean. They said a new study estimates that 270,000 tons of plastic is floating. It's enough to fill 38,500 garbage trucks. It's broken into more than 5 trillion pieces. It was published Wednesday by the scientific journal PLOS One. The paper is the latest in the field where scientists are trying to understand how much synthetic materials entered the oceans and how it's affecting fish, seabird, seabirds, and larger marine ecosystems. Studies authored by Marcus Erickson of uh, Five Guys Institute, an organization that aims to reduce plastics in the ocean. Now, if okay, here's something. I mean, not that I'm for garbage in the ocean, but if you're the lead author in a paper, but you're in, but your organization. Already has an agenda. Don't you consider that to be a little biased to do a research paper?
1: Not necessarily biased. Maybe just trying to prove, uh, you know, a particular point.
0: Okay. They said uh, one of the ways they gathered their data is they dragged a fine mesh net in the sea surface to gather small pieces. Observers in the boats counted the larger items. They used a computer model to calculate estimates for tracks in the ocean not surveyed. The study only measured plastic floating at the surface. Plastic on the ocean floor wasn't included. Bits greater than eight inches accounted for three-quarters of the plastic that researchers estimated is in the ocean. In addition, the study's estimate for tiny plastic bits less than one-fifth of an inch, about 35,540 tons, is comparable to an earlier study done by researchers in Spain who used a different methodology. The study estimated 7,000 to 35,000 tons of plastic this size floating in the oceans. Uh, they're saying that it's encouraging that the approaches came uh to similar answers but were done with different estimations. And then what they're trying to figure out is they're trying to figure out what, how the plastic affects. And that's what I I want to understand a little bit better is what happens with that plastic. He says, what if we eat a tuna that's ingested another fish that has eaten plastic, that in turn eaten another fish with plastic? These plastics could have potentially toxic chemicals, according to the author. Uh, and that's what I want to understand is, you know, we make things with plastic all the times. You, th- you put plastic in your mouth. I mean, you unintentionally ingest plastic, but we don't panic about it, what makes it different if a, a fish eats it than we eat the fish?
1: I think part of it, remember, was that controversy about putting liquids, not necessarily just water, into plastic containers, and the material of the plastic actually is diluted, not necessarily melted, but you do pick up chemicals from the plastic bottle, depend on the type of material acidic or whatever is in your mm-hmm. liquid, and that you're actually picking up some of the I don't know PVCs or whatever the hell is it. For?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things that, I, um, not being a chemist, that I I don't know of. But that's what that's what I think they need to the study.
1: Well, the the other aspect that they're not addressing here, but has been addressed in other places, is you know the nanoparticles. Yes. How much of that are you ingesting, and don't have a clue? Because right. a lot of the creams and cleansers and you name it is so is just that nano it's actually being absorbed in your skin when you put certain creams on your face. And what long-term effect does that have?
0: Yeah, I, I don't think we know. But and how recent is plastics? I mean, I know I know we've, we're using more plastics now than ever before, but it, it's been my whole life. Since I was born, plastics been everywhere.
1: Right. Well, you know, here's another little side thing to think about. They said it would take, what, 38,500 garbage trucks Right. right, And how many tons was that?
0: Oh, let's see here. That was 270,000 tons of plastic in the oceans, 38,500 garbage trucks.
1: Okay, I I think the number's a little off because per the USPA, just for Americans, Mm -hmm. they generate 250 million tons of trash in 2010. Right, I believe it. 250 million tons. So, comparatively speaking, that's not a lot of trash, is it? in the oceans compared to what we develop in the US in one year.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, it's uh, there's a, there was a show on TV just this week and it was the biggest. And I was astonished at some of the numbers. And they said a lot of these numbers are just recent in the last 20 years, but they're they're showing a desert in Spain and that part of the country was almost completely co- covered in greenhouses that they've taken desert and they've turned to greenhouses and you know if you if you get a tomato in the store and it says Produce of Spain—that's where it's from—and well, the numbers that they were talking about, you just—it's—it's it's hard to fathom. So it's not surprising.
1: No, I—I'm looking at the pictures here. This is from—it's um, called "Garbage by the Numbers." Just to give you a quick one: four point four pounds each person produces daily for the EPA. At sixteen hundred pounds, a typical American produces annually seventy-two million tons. And I'm looking at the conglomeration of a typical and. It looks like 90% is plastic, baggies and bottles and bottle caps.
0: Yeah. Well, and I, I do have to say that bottled water has got to be the last 15 to 20 years. Cause I, when I was in high school, bottled water was glass bottle and it was called Perrier. And we used to laugh at people who bought it because it was like, Oh, you're too good to drink water from the tap. And then now, you know, just my household, we probably buy two cases of bottled water. And a lot of it's for convenience because it's easy to hand the kids, you know, two bottles of water and that goes with them. So I I definitely believe that we we're, we're using a lot more. Oh, I can just... I can remember you went to the grocery store and it was all paper bags and I remember being mad because they were trying to push that plastic shit on me. I always said when they they had these plastic bags. And now that's all you get is plastic.
1: Yeah. I mean yeah, you're right, everything is.
0: So it's it's changed a lot. And then I'm I'm here in my office and Here's a, uh, a DVD. Yes, I, I still do have a DVD player. It's a DVD I've never opened, and it's got that plastic all the way around it, shrunk wrap. When you get Christmas gifts this year, look at, you know, those have those, you know, heat-welded blister packs mm-hmm. that are a weapon in themselves. Yeah, I'm just I'm just looking at, you know, just how there, how much plastic we've got. And that's had to have been probably from the time I was born, and it's really accelerated the last 20 years.
1: It's hard to remember when you didn't have.
0: Well, wasn't the original plastic Bakelite, wasn't that kind of like the beginning? You know, they hadn't quite got the polymer chains to where they are now.
1: Well, uh, bak I never saw. Bakelite, when I used it, was in electronic gear and, and yeah. different hard items.
0: Yeah, like a phone or a radio case. But I think that was kind of the beginning of it.
1: Well, depending on who you also hear, though, you'll find articles why glass jars are not necessarily better for the environment than plastic ones.
0: Well, yeah. Well, it depends on what your measurement is. Is your measurement the waste of the material after, you know, disposing of it? Is it the ability to recycle? Is it the energy used to produce? Because that's, I'm sure, what the glass argument is. Well, yeah, st-
1: glass jars produce between a quarter and a third more greenhouse gases than plastic. Yeah,
0: and, and plastic they've gotten pretty good at shrinking them down. I mean, you, if you ever watch that machine that makes the bottles, they, they start off with a, with a drinking bottle. They start off with this blank. That looks about the size of your your finger, the end of your finger, and then they they heat it up, blow it, and it goes into a mold, and it just stretches out to fill up the whole bottle.
1: I didn't believe the article though. They said that using the plastic as opposed to glass, you use and they release fewer carcinogens in the air. They sent fewer pollutants into the waterway. Now I wonder how they mean that because that doesn't seem to be true.
0: Well, other than the the plastic itself, I mean, it's it's all about it. I mean, I can take anything that is considered green and convince you why it's not green. <laughs> so, uh, but we we do need to understand this, and maybe it's a matter we make plastics a little differently, make a little bit different recipe of them. You know, we, we've got that technology. I, I I myself like glass.
1: Interesting. Yeah,
0: I can, I can remember Tupperware. Yeah, yeah, Tupper Tupperware is a is a big deal. You know how much stuff do I still every day cook and reheat in plastics? Yeah, that other article that you had uh, was also from the uh, Huffington Post. Yep, mm-hmm. that showed the uh, the ocean currents and the where they thought the uh, concentrations would be. Yep. So it makes you wonder how the, if this is the survey that they're saying matched with the other.
1: Did you get down to the cut-up dish? Let's see.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Well, and that was good because what 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 Max talking about is a they, they're showing the this uh, not subtitle caption says it's a rainbow runner from the Pacific garbage patch. They said once the uh, oh and they're, and they're showing the the plastic that's in, ingested when they uh, when they cut open its stomach, and there's quite a few pieces there, and that makes sense because a lot of the I mean when you're fishing with a lure, you're trying to make it all attractive and. You know, if they'll go after your lure and bite at it, and that's got a hook in it. You know, these plastic pieces have to look pretty yummy.
1: Well, the old lures were wooden, biodegradable, with a little paint on them, probably lead paint.
0: Yeah, lead paint.
1: And a small little item, by the way. Shopping bags, they were patented in the 1950s, started becoming used worldwide in the 60s. And from the 1980s, that's when you saw the big increase of plastic or paper.
0: Yep. Well, the one reason, like, now, if I'm offered plastic or paper... I don't know if the plastic is better, but that you can really overload that bag, and it won't tear. You know, a paper bag, if you got something that's cold and you get some condensation on it, it will soak that paper bag and it will rip right open.
1: Yeah. Annually, we use 102 billion plastic bags annually in the U.S. alone.
0: No, oh, easily. Billions.
1: That's amazing.
0: We'll, well, look at it this way. Not to pick on Walmart, but, you know, their sales would approach $300 billion. Yeah. And... Everything goes into a plastic bag.
1: I just remember when I was in Europe, and and even when I visited it, and Kathy lived there, and we visited there, they don't use the plastic. They carry theirs in a bag that they use over and over and over. And I'm just looking, according to UK's environmental agency, 76% of the British population carrier bags are reused, meaning they use something that, you know, you take your own bag with you. Yeah, we've well, tried it.
0: that a few times here in the U.S. I mean, there's some stores that were charging extra if you didn't bring a bag, or some would give you a 25 cents credit if you brought your own bag.
1: Yeah, but did it, you know that China banned plastic bags in 2008?
0: I didn't know China did.
1: Yep, yeah. and several so, well, the countries impose a tax at the point of sale if you use plastic.
0: I know that California was is in the process of eliminating plastic bags for retail. Yeah, I. I I get the plastic bags from the store, and then I've got a, a holder in the cabinet, and that's where all the plastic bags go after we're emptying the groceries, and then they get reused until they disintegrate.
1: Basically, you don't mean disintegrate. You mean it has a hole in them, don't carry it
0: up. Well, yeah, disintegrate for the purpose of holding an item, you know, when the, yeah, but, when the hole's too big. But yeah. then they
1: go in the trash.
0: Right, it goes in the trash, which goes in the landfill. The thing with them is that they're so light, if you if you let one go in the air, I mean, it can, it can go for miles. And, and walk through the woods walk through any any woods around the state and within a, three or four minutes you'll find a plastic bag that's got caught in the brush for the leaves
1: and you don't find 10 cans anymore do you because well
0: no because yeah
1: yeah you got that deposit returned
0: yep i i was a, a little kid when that happened and i can remember going through the ditch i was I was cleaning up stuff in front of the house, and I would collect the cans and make a pile. Maybe I was was doing that before I was diving. So I had this nice little pile, and then the deposit came, and then there were no more cans. But before that, I could clean up that ditch, and then in a week, and I don't think we lived on that busy of a road, there'd be another 20 or 30 cans.
1: So does that mean that we should put a premium on plastic like that and have a big bag so you use over and over? You could. That'd be one option. Sure would reduce a lot of trash, and that's what we seem to be saying. So they should make the bags a good bit bigger so we can last longer and use them over
0: and over. Yeah, we could do that. And that's what some of those, uh, call them a fiber bag, where they're a, a spun mesh bag. And that's what a lot of them are selling. Yep. I think the grocery stores are selling them for a buck a piece and they had their name on the side. Yeah. Okay, well, let's go to this next one. Uh, this is also a follow-up from a few weeks back. It says illegal devices plunder tuna stock. And what they're talking about, in I can't remember how many episodes it was ago, five, six, and it was known as FADS or Fish Aggregating Devices. And the article at that time wasn't real clear on whether they were legal, illegal, what they were, but this article seems to say that they're legal, and this one's out of New Zealand. It says, tens of thousands of drifting objects about the size of small motorboats are aiding in the plunder of South Pacific's tuna stocks, Major Fisheries Confer- Conference had told today, and this is December 3rd, which would have been, was it last Thursday? or Wednesday, so sometime last week, so in the conference, they said uh, they're known as FADs, fish aggregation devices and armed with transponders that can only be tracked by tuna fishing boats that launched them. Now, one of the key regional groups says they believe that there are 80,000 FADs drifting across the Pacific, and between them, they're used to take nearly half the total tuna catch. And they said particularly the threatened but lucrative big-eye tuna. These FADs drift from zone to zone, often through zones where fishing boats are not licensed to fish, but they wait until the FADs drift into zones where they are fishing, an official in Pacific, the eight Pacific Nation parties to the Nauru Agreement said. He labels FADs illegal, unregulated, unreported, and to date, untracked fishing. Reve- revelation came as a P.S. Samoa conference in the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission WCPFC, which controls the high-sea tuna fishing. Fads attract tuna and divert them from their natural path. South Pacific community official Shelton Harley says the fishing companies will not tell them how much fish is being caught off each fad. Or this year, European Parliament paper said that there were many thousands of fads in the ocean and their use has been accelerating. As well as tuna, fads attract large bycatch, including sharks. Papers say no other single technology improvement has had such an equal magnitude on impact of improving the efficiency of pursuing sign fishing. In 1913, a record 297 boats fished for tuna in the management area using uh, the sign gear, and most of these relied on fads to locate fish. This year, earlier reports indicate the number continues to grow to approximately 305 vessels expecting to target tuna in the area. That is unbelievable, 80,000.
1: On one hand, some people are saying it's illegal, shouldn't do it. And now the other one says a technological breakthrough, basically, for fishing. Well, yeah. Depending on which side of the fence you're on.
0: Well, it's going to allow you to take it. It just oh, yeah. what's the impact? The bycatch is, to me, has always been you're trying to regulate your fisheries. You determine how much that can be taken of a particular target fish, and then you have bycatch. And that's why in some vessels they have agents. And I think you almost it almost is going to have to get to that point. Consejo in the U.S. we have USD agents at beef processing plants, there almost needs to be licensed agents who are on the boats or who are tracking this stuff.
1: But agents for what government? And do you really want the UN?
0: No, I don't want the UN.
1: I mean, obviously, what you're saying is it takes a regulating agency to do it, since all the countries won't won't work together, which they're not, then you need the UN to preempt it because they know it's better for all of us.
0: Now, the, the, the UN is just a, is another layer of tax. It, it, it was never meant to, for the world to support another layer. So you've got local communities, counties, states, countries, and then countries have another body. I mean, how, how much tax and regulation can the world put up with? You know, they, the need to do is all the countries involved need to determine, you know, what it is. And if a fad floats into your area, you know the U.S. can make a law right now saying fads are illegal. If your fad comes into your area, we'll we'll come we'll confiscate your boat when you come to pick it up.
1: So what I'll do is I'll move my shipping company to a different country, and I'll fish right off the ten-mile limit and be happy.
0: I don't think fisheries have a ten-mile limit, do they? I don't know. I'm I, I'm just I mean that would be, that'd be I something. I don't think
1: they have too many Russian boats in our ten-mile area, though.
0: No, not in our ten-mile area. Let's just, I vote, vote. Now uh, you know the, the advantage we have of Alaska is we have enough little islands there that really takes out some of those zones pretty far. But you can make it an inconvenient for them. Yeah. But at, at some point, I don't know when are people going to realize that they're just overfishing. I mean, that seems to be a common.
1: It, it, they're really overfishing though. It's just us. We got too many people. Well, I we started out with a couple of billion. Now we got eight. We've got we've got to reduce our numbers. Otherwise, you're never going to catch up.
0: So you, you think if if we have less people, then there is no problem with overfishing?
1: Well, there won't be overfishing because there'll be more fish than there is people want them.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: Pretty soon we'll be in the soylent green, but that's a different topic. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just have to get my uh, my recipe out for soylent green, and we'll be all all set. Next one is we have scuba diver finds lost wedding ring. That was another one from last week, and uh, thanks to. You know, viral social media, he's been able to find the person. He found it through Facebook. And just to remind everybody, uh, it was a 21-year-old commercial and recreational diver. He was down in Mexico when he found this ring. And then the date on the ring was February 16th, 2013, with the acronym T-Y-Y-J-C-E-M engraved on it. And uh, he's had about 30 people call. So uh, this, when this last one called, he was thinking, ah, yeah, sure, that's your ring. And uh, they were able to describe it.
1: Well, I had a picture of it last week, remember?
0: Yeah. Well, he, let me see if I can find it. Uh, they said that the post was shared more than 200,000 times. So uh, after two months of searching for Jessica, who, whose ring it, uh, it was, they said he was stunned to be contracted by someone claiming to be her cousin. He said he had received more than 50 Facebook messages from people claiming to be, be the owner. Uh, she offered up Jessica Garza's wedding photos, including the picture of two identical rings as evidence. He then spoke with Garza's husband, Martin Costello, uh, who confirmed the ring size and also showed photos of his wife's matching band and receipt confirming the purchase. That, that-, that makes a
1: good deal right there. Yeah.
0: he, he Costello rev- uh Castillo revealed that the ring had slipped off his finger as the newlyweds were scuba diving the Barracuda Point. They spent five hours searching for the piece of jewelry, uh, but didn't find it.
1: I wonder if anybody's done the mathematical probability on that.
0: On it, how, how many people it would take to, to find it?
1: Well, well the odds of being able to refine that and then finding the, the arms.
0: Well, you think about, was it the, the rule uh, six degrees or seven degrees of separation? Yeah. You should be able to be... Introduced anybody in the world through just seven contacts. So if you go with with that thinking, as long as people care about looking and passing it on, so you got to calculate and it was shared two hundred thousand times. It's it's all going to depend on the network and the and the, the language.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, there's some study there. And this next, glad to found, found the owner because that really makes it fun. They can does. find something like that and then return it. And then get the history of how that happened. Yeah.
0: Well, he's he hasn't returned the ring yet. He's he's working on plans to travel down there so he can deliver it to him. To me, it seems like it could be a little bit easier to insure it and put it in a box. But yeah, you know, heck, you get excuse to go down to Mexico do some more diving. <laughs> and next up, we have. Let's see. Do I have this one already queued up? Of all the ocean's predators, scuba divers' biggest danger is themselves. And the author of this article was a, he says he's a master scuba diver with nine dive certifications and 130 plus dives under his belt. So that's almost like a certification for every 12 dives.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we, we won't get into the question of certifications, will we?
0: <laughs> well, I'm thinking, okay, for every certification, how many dives do you have with somebody else? So, uh, and at one point in time, I would say 130 is a lot, but. That would be about a year's diving. It's about a year's diving, yes.
1: In the north? <laughs>
0: yeah. So he's talking about on Good Friday this year, he did uh, what he considered to be a normal 12-meter boat dive at a Sydney diving spot. He says he went down rather quickly, and uh, he says since I was trying to mime a novice diver that needed to put more air in her buoyancy control device to reduce her rate of descent, I accidentally ended up adding too much air to mine in the process and up popping back to the surface. Then, in hindsight, very unwisely, rather than staying at the surface and calling an end of my dive, I descended immediately and quite quickly so that rejoined the rest of the group. The rest of the dive passed without incident. I felt absolutely fine during the surface interval. The recommended time one has to stay in the surface between dives allowed nitrogen buildup in the body the result of breathing compressed air and approximately 78% nitrogen to diminish. After the surface interval, I went down for a second dive at the same site, which again passed without incident. So when I got off the boat an hour or so later, my my right ear felt like it was full of water. I really didn't think much of it. Later in the day, I felt an oral fullness still hadn't rescinded, and I also developed the ringing in my right ear accompanied by a noticeable reduction in hearing. telephoned a good friend of his who is in the diving fraternity, also happens to be a qualified dive medic, and I advised to take some nasal and oral decongestant medication over the course of the weekend. And this was on a Saturday. Uh, And then he went to see a scuba diving general practitioner, uh, they both knew on Monday. He examined ransom tests, referred me to a leading ENT specialist in Sydney's North Shore, who was also a diver himself, rather than he, the specialist ran a number of audiology tests before referring me to an MRI to roll out possibility the ear problem could be caused by something internal, unrelated diving. Subsequent tests, unfortunately, showed no improved leaving. Special diagnosed, I had sustained inner ear bear trauma, which sadly means a ringing in my ear, officially called tinnitus, and hearing loss may well be permanent. Because I'm also experienced severe difficulty equalizing. Uh, it's entirely possible I may never dive again. And then he shows, uh, uh, he's, he's, he's actually had the, the dive logged and he shows the profile. So looking retrospect at my dive profile, the rates and ups and downs recorded by my dive computer, I can see that I descended, ascended, then descended again to 18 meters in a space of two minutes. This subjected my ear to significant changes in pressure, which ultimately led to the, to this uh, trauma. You know, the thing is, if you look at that, and his depth in meters was, so he went down really quick and then shot to the surface. Not that I would advise that.
1: i sure that five meters when she went back up.
0: Yeah, five meters, which is 25 feet, and then he went back up. So he no, wasn't.
1: No, five meters? Five 15 meters. Feet, 15 feet.
0: Right, 15. Oh, that's right. So 15 feet. That doesn't seem to be that deep. it's You have a big change in pressure
1: yeah, at that
0: depth. Yeah. And any time I've had, I won't call it ear problems, but I've had where I just don't you know, a lot of that shallow up and down, like sometimes when we're grubbing and moving stuff, after about the third or fourth time, you know, it's I, it, I'm i done.
1: I know, I get a block just like you do.
0: Yeah, so I, I don't do that. So if I'm looking at dive profile, and and he said going down, me going down, is as long as I'm able to equalize on my way down, I don't think going down quickly is really a problem. Now, you don't want to be uncontrolled. I mean, if you are going down and you can't stop your ascent if you need to, then yeah, you're going too quick. But again, looking at his dive profile, I would not say that they were going down too quick. But it just shows your everybody's bodies can react differently. And then when, the way he talked about it, I, you know, I would have done almost the exact same thing that he did. Uh,
1: read the comments after
0: it. Let me see. S- sensible advice. We often see divers do exactly what you did the first 10 minutes of dive, as they have sometimes small issues like yourself. I think the first few minutes dive can lead to any issues. Certainly the novice recreational diver checking all equipment at 10 feet and a buddy is all good, a habit to get, discover something below 35. Yeah, but looking at his profile, he wasn't even down to 30. He was, like you said, 15 feet. No. So he would have been within that area where you'd have checked. He, what it is is, you know, all I can think of is either he had, you know, some condition which just exasperated uh, or he did something and in the moment didn't realize He did it like he he held his breath. When he came up, I mean would that be possible? Or he was over or under equalized at some point during that dive?
1: And I'd have been more concerned with the nimblism as opposed to my ears, but usually my ears would start talking to right?
0: me. Yeah. And then I, I see the other one where they talk about what I had what I had mentioned earlier.
1: <laughs> I yeah. A novice teaching a novice at the time. Hundred and thirty dives, nine certs, novice teaching novice. Yeah. Mm hmm. It's like, it's like getting a, a dive instructor certification. You just start from never do, go right through that to the advanced open water to your blah, blah, blah. So you, you get your certification, and all your dives have been training dives. You've got no right. experience. You know what I'm saying?
0: Well, well, Master Diver, you can get Master Dive certification, I believe it's 50, 50 dives. And that title is misleading. It makes somebody think that you're an expert. I'm a master diver. I mean, what other activity? I mean, if you're a motorcycle driver, you, you you decide you're going to race motorcycles, and you do you get on the bike 50 times, and all of a sudden you're a master cyclist.
1: Well, they do have ratings, the same as uh, skydiving, for example, for your student mm-hmm. all the way through your master. Uh, what they would consider a master, I mean, you've had over 500 jumps for a master. A lot of places now want a thousand.
0: Right. Yeah, and I can see that because that's like about 50. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm for giving people milestones and things, and then you've got the zero to Superman type of programs. So I don't fault him for learning, but and was he was he he can I don't think he was an instructor. In the comments, somebody said that he was, but I don't think he's claiming to be. I think he was more mentoring.
1: Right, that's what I got out of it. too, helping yeah. somebody, yeah. And as dive master or master diver, you're going to be given advice because you've had the classes, you've had yeah. the training. You just haven't had all the experience. Still, 130 dives is a lot, yeah. especially if you're doing ocean diving. They're not like a lot of my stuff is 15 to 20 feet, you know, a couple hours at a time. But there's a big difference between that and like when Jim and them goes out there on 80-footers, yeah. 120-ers. Big difference in the quality and the type of dive. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Or, well, and, so, like flying, they'll say you, you got 100 hours of flight time. Is that one hour times 100, meaning you did the same thing 100 times in a row? Or did you do 100 different things during those 100 hours? Right. So you have the 100 hours, but one guy's got a vast amount of experience. The other one has experience. And I just stayed around the the park and did my touch and goes. So I don't know where he fits.
0: Yeah. Well, and then there is a difference. Now, he's down in New Zealand, so I don't know how their certification, if it was a paddy. But you've got dive master and master diver. Master diver is a recreational rating. Which is just kind of like, a, a, you know, it's along with all your other certs for seeing pretty fish and buoyancy. And you just accumulate to a certain amount of time. And it's like one more thing that you can, you know, pay the dive shop to get a certification in. Uh, where a dive master is uh, the beginning of professional ratings where you're actually learning about, uh, you know, in, in fact, I've heard some people say it's, it's some of the most involved dive training that there is. Okay, so the next one is an article from the British Subaquatic Club Association. They published their annual diving incident report for 2014 and the, the, it records a total of 216 incidents. They monitored and report on diving incident accidents since uh, 1964. The report claims details of UK diving incidents occurred to divers of all affiliations and incidents occurring in a worldwide involving BSAC members. So if you're a BSAC member, no matter where you are, if that was a recorded incident, then uh, they added to their statistics. The number of incidents has declined in the last three years by approximately 60 per year. The BSAC concluded the decline may be because the normal amount of diving Has taken place, but either has been safer and fewer accidents. Did I say that right? They included the decline, maybe because a normal amount of diving has taken place, but that maybe that's a UK way of wording it. Uh, Either has been safer, fewer incidents have occurred, or normal, or a normal number of incidents have occurred, but fewer have been reported.
1: I like the next one
0: alternately less diving may have taken place and thus fewer incidents occurred which would be kind of the statistical osha explanation for it
1: well it's also you take a look at the number of clubs number of participants going down every year that to me means less diving
0: yeah well and then the people who are diving are going to either be the old guys who have been doing it a long time and have better experience because i would say most of your and, and this is uh, probably statistics will will bear this out. Is it's going to be your your divers in their 20 to 40, 20 to 50 dive range. Uh, the incident year ran from October first, twenty thirteen to thirtieth of September twenty fourteen to two hundred and sixteen incidents. Sixteen were fatal. Six cases probably involved divers who suffered a non diving related medical incident, for example, a heart attack whilst in the water. Four cases involved separation of some kind. One case involved a diver who died as a result of breathing poisonous gas in a dry passage in a partially flooded mine.
1: Yeah, that's a good thing to remember is don't take your regular out when you get into an air pocket.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, in, do we encourage that in indirectly? You know, maybe mines is a different thing, but we've got, uh, doing a lot of these lakes, we've got our communication booths.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a lot different because that's going to be expelled there and there's no other materials that are going to be leading to having something toxic in there unless somebody deliberately did something with it.
0: Yeah, yeah somebody would have to deliberately do it. Uh, methane, I think, would be about your only chance, and I doubt you could get enough methane in there to fill it up.
1: Well, I reckon if you got into a dry passage in a ship to spend out a long time, you're not going to have necessarily any oxygen in there. You might have monoxide, dioxide.
0: Oh, uh, you know, depending on also whatever was on board the ship the cargo. Yeah, uh, you could have things that, that go into that. So that's, that's something to be aware of. But I was, that's a bad day, breathing poisonous gas.
1: But it's still good. Dog yep. and Yep.
0: then here, this next one's from South Carolina. And at first, I, you almost wonder if this was a joke, because I didn't realize that there was even a market for this. The jellyfish industry is meeting resistance in South Carolina.
2: So, there's an industry for
0: jellyfish? <laughs> there's a jellyfish industry. Look at the picture. That yeah. is a cool picture. Yeah. So the, out of Savannah, Georgia, if you go to a beach in Georgia, South Carolina, you're filled with large round globs called cannonball jellyfish or jellyballs. They said you've probably also noticed there are a lot of them. Their abundance has helped spur on an industry in Georgia and Florida for years, catching, processing, and shipping millions of pounds of jellyballs to Asia for food. And there's a company in South Carolina that wants in on the action, but the jellyball operation is meeting local resistance. They said it's the start of Georgia's busy season for jellyballs, and the boats are already hauling them in. Uh, one of the Thorell King's boats is docked in Darien with a big hose stretching out of the hull. It sucks jelly balls out of the boat and spits them onto a conveyor belt. Well, they're, they land in bins for further processing. It's a busy operation and it has to be. Each bro- boat brings in 100,000 pounds or more of jellyfish. So like most of the fish, the boats that catch jelly balls, the king's crews catch shrimp too, but he estimates jelly balls make up 70% of his business and it doesn't just help him. The jelly ball operation also creates more jobs. We literally, if we were shrimping, instead of those 150 people working, we would need zero of them. We only need one single one of, them. I said, I would not need one single one of them. King says he only needs his boat crews of about a half dozen people to unload shrimp. Jelly balls require more hands on deck because the loads are bigger and they need to be washed, separated, and packed by hand. The washing is where the trouble is starting for South Carolina Jelly Ball Company. Jelly balls produce a substance to defend against predators, and that needs to be rinsed off. Uh The people who live in the area, uh, John Cashin, who lives near Jenkins Creek and uh, Beaufort County, South Carolina, is worried about the runoff from the washing process. The toxicity has been showed to kill small shrimp and fish, he says. He's part of a group of area residents who are trying to stop jelly ball processing in the creek. They point to testing done at the request of the state regulators that found the runoff exceeds state toxicity limits and require permit under federal law. The Jelly Balls processor environment consultant Bob Gross says once diluted by the stream, the runoff will not harm Jenkins Creek. The test results showed that discharge was toxic in itself, but animals don't live in that discharge; they live in the stream.
1: Now, is and it their solution is going to be easy? All you got to do is continually dilute, dilute it, yeah, stuff, and therefore it'll be below the, the level that they consider toxic. <laughs> yes. Now, I am sure you have looked it up and already know what cannonball jellyfish are used for, right?
0: No, I haven't.
1: Well, I'll tell you. Okay. They're, and if you're tasting them, they're bland at the best. Their market is China, where slivered, dry jellyfish are commonly served before banquets, strewn across salads. Cooks don't use the cellophane-like strips without first dousing them in soy or se- uh, sesame, se- sesame oil. Okay. Because the allure of jellyfish is a distinctive texture, suggestive of a cross between a potato chip and a stretched-out rubber band. <laughs> 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 we call it crunchy crisp. It's like when you eat chitterlings. You're not really that Chiv- you want food. You want that mouthfeel. Anyway, it says the mouth. It's uh, the mouthfeel is so intense in China, Japan, and Thailand that an export market has cropped up from in the south to get this, like they're doing, and send them to Asia.
0: Yeah. Well, you and think you think about it, it. I mean, when I first saw the story i was thinking well jellyfish aren't they complaining there are too many
1: of them anyway right and then florida and georgia are now getting into that too
0: yeah you know my thought is yeah they 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 need to regulate the guys a little bit so that there's not i mean you just can't be putting you can't kill the creek to do this and it doesn't seem like it would take all that much effort to reduce the toxicity to some point you know pre-dilute it Break it down process it yeah I know it's a lot cheaper to just not even have to worry about it
1: yeah I sent you a link on that just because it had another boat showing you how to do it plus them uh, prepared for shipment mm-hmm. so it's quite interesting yeah. well, and I can I see it it's something I'll just chew on a rubber band, I suppose yeah
0: well you think about what you know we've got crackling you know or uh, pork rinds
1: oh I like them
0: yeah see. Yeah, i I'm, I'm sure other cultures are. You're going to say a, a, a pork rind. You're doing what? You're. Yeah, I can remember my dad would have the pork rind, and there, you know, someone would have hair sticking out of them.
1: Well, that's like pickled pig
0: feet. You know, I've never had a pickled pig's feet. Well,
2: I night, don't there's think I intend
1: to either. You get the knuckle and it has a hair in it, and you use that for a toothpick when you're done.
0: Yeah, you could scratch your name on the wall. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I, I could
0: see it. Yeah, you know, I, I. I think it's a. It's an interesting industry definitely different yeah and and the thing with it is you know, and it's been the point where my used to get my dad mad when everybody was talking about natural some of the most toxic items known in the world are naturally occurring they can still be toxic so it's more it's more an issue of concentration and i can the, the thing that the their biologists might have on their side is that you're taking something from the water that's naturally occurring and you're just changing the concentration, and it will dilute back out into the water that it was originally in. Yeah.
1: Now, if they could only find something like that they could do for lionfish, that's a win-win.
0: Yeah. Well, you you know the one way around this would be is instead of processing it inshore on the stream, do what the, the other countries do and have this big factory ship sitting off the coast bobbing in the water, and they process it all out there. Yeah. And we have the Quincy Fire Department kind of in one of our themes today. They they're, They want to give away their gear.
1: Jim will take it. Jim will
0: take it. Yes. And they're going to give it to the Tri-Township Fire Department. This is out of Quincy, Illinois. Uh, one Adams County Fire Department is handing over gear to another. The Quincy fire officials decided in September to hand off the scuba water rescue duties to the Tri-Township Fire Department. Now Quincy officials want to give all their scuba gear to Tri-Township for a dollar because Quincy no longer needs the equipment. So there are a couple different reasons why they think handing over the duties was the best decision. Our numbers are dwindling in terms of firefighters that are interested in being emergency response scuba divers. And more importantly, we're being taxed with more and more responsibilities with our technical rescue team and our hazardous materials team. Uh, Quincy City Council will hear the resolution the first time next week at their meeting. So I think this is just a trend with... Uh, Agencies and generals that they, as you continue to specialize and do the training, you know, I I was a mounted officer and the training, I I always said we need more training, need more training. And then when we got it, it became a a job. You, You would get, you could, you could be in training a lot. And I know firemen had more training than we did.
1: What do you think about that, Jim?
2: It's, it's very interesting. Um, dive teams. In the state of Michigan, because we're under Michigan OSHA versus the federal, if you're involved in a rescue, there's a completely different set of rules than if you're doing a recovery.
0: And the difference between a rescue and recovery is whether they're alive or dead.
2: Uh, if there's the possibility that they could be alive, yes. You get cold water drowning and, you know, a million dive reflex. So, you know, at what point, that that's often been a, a controversy within departments. At what point do you turn from rescue to recovery? But in a rescue mode, um, Michigan OSHA is a lot more lenient than they are in a recovery mode, which makes perfect sense. I mean, it's, you know, we'll, we'll let you cut some corners if you can save a life. But if that's not why you're there, then, you know, let's go back to the full set of rules so that we don't endanger anyone, endanger any of the rescuers. So the training required um, differs. You know, firefighters for structural firefighting have to have a minimum of 24 hours of structural firefighter refresher training every year. Um, I I haven't found anything that requires that for dive training, for dive rescue. So it's... uh, yeah. And it, it's a slippery slope and a big can of worms. Yeah,
0: And in, in their case, it looked like they just didn't have as much interest and they were trying to pick up. So, uh, you yeah, know, and, and we've seen a little bit of this because it used to be every fire department was a hazmat team. And now it seems like some of that responsibility's moved up to the county level. And I, I think in Berrien County, it's the uh, sheriff's department who handles a lot of hazmat.
1: It's really involved when you start talking hazmat because you got the biological you got the chemical you got the radiological yeah and to keep current and have the proper equipment with the training that you practiced you're talking money and money is what communities don't seem to have a lot of
0: yeah well and that's kind of why the the county picked it up and just to the level you know the county was responding to they have two separate nuclear facilities that they can respond to you know one is just outside the county one is directly in the middle of it you've got a interstate highway that runs through the center. So anything that can be transported on the roads uh, can happen. Oh, and then the rail. Did you see what happened in Niles this last week? Yeah. Yeah, for, for those listening to the show, in, in Niles, Michigan, the Amtrak train was on its way from Chicago to Detroit. And while they were stopped at the Niles train station, which has been used in many movies, it's a beautiful train station. Uh, one of the passengers decided to start stabbing other passengers and the local uh, police department had to respond and they were able to subdue the man. And I don't, I don't believe there are any fatalities. And a lot of people on a train actually commented how quick the local responders were, but you, you, you've got a little bit of everything that can happen and you got to be prepared for it. Let's see. We're about, we're almost an hour in. Um, so let's see. The next one we have is uh, Sony's newest store. And I want to know what they're selling in their, their newest store here. They're making a big deal. Uh, what they are done, it's in uh, Dubai. And if you want to go into the store, you have to be a diver. And Sony, in some cases, you had to apply. Uh, if you weren't a diver, they were actually giving you instructions. And the store is called the Xperia Aquatech store. It was a marketing gimmick to drive home the point that Sony makes waterproof devices. It's an admirably over-the-top approach. The concept store was only open uh, four meters. It was only, well, I don't know why they say that. It's, it was four meters underwater in Dubai, and it was only open for three days. So even if you're a PADI certified dive master, you need to be a contest winner, VRP, or other Sony-approved patron before you could enter the jellyfish-themed underwater structure. They provided scuba training and dive instructor guides to help people reach the store along with a the boat. They also provided waterproof cases for those who own the Xperia Z3 phone because they're only waterproof to one and a half meters, and it was, well, four meters down. Now, looking at that store, would you want to be working the counter? Because I'm going to think you're going to get waterlogged, wouldn't you?
1: You would think so at the least, unless you've got some platform you can get up and get the hell out of the water. <laughs> yeah,
0: because it's what they're showing is if you imagine a, a dome, and it's not that big a dome, uh, kind of in a jellyfish head shape. And then it had some stylized tentacles out the side, and there's some random portholes. And they show a shot from inside, and I don't, what were they selling? I, I don't see any anything for sale.
1: Well, they just said it was a real, just a gimmick, and they had, looked like GoPros on the inside. But Go, Sony doesn't make GoPros. <laughs> <laughs> they said there, not too many of the divers had wallets, so they really didn't sell much. I'm just curious, looking at that diagram there, are those tentacles really heavy chains to use to keep that down there?
0: You no, know, it could be. That would make sense.
1: Yeah, that's what I was looking at. It's about, if it's chains, I understand it.
0: Well, I've, I've, they just, it, the, the, it's gimmick from front to end. Yeah. But, uh, and it got people like us to talk about it, which is really what they wanted. Yeah. Uh, the thing is that it was done by somebody who didn't understand scuba divers, because aren't you a little insulted it's only waterproof one and a half meters? That's yeah. That, that, what that's good for is you drop it into a puddle. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe use it in a pool, but... You know, the sh- only the shallow
2: end of the pool. Yeah, you don't want to go to the deep
0: end. I've always thought waterproof would be good even for stuff that goes in a housing. Wouldn't that seem to make it a little bit more durable? And costly. Yeah. Sometimes I don't know how expensive it is to make something... Well, the difference between waterproof and water-resistant, I can remember in uh, when I was in high school making electronic gear, and I would coat it in silicone if, uh, if it, well, there was a risk of get, getting wet. And that always seemed to work. So, you know, people played up to being a big deal. And then there's a you were talking about the comments. If you go through the comments, there are people who were, you had uh, the author of the article was complaining that they should have let free divers go down and do it. And there's a whole thread about people saying of all the risk if free divers went and then were in there and breathed the air at compression levels and then went up to the surface.
1: Which is a valid point. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I it would be one reason it be mostly risk, because I think a proper pre, free diver who knew what they were doing, that's also probably the reason why it was invitation only. Even though I would love to see an underwater store someplace. Maybe you could have one with an airlock. Yeah, just carry your credit card. But uh, British researchers uh, had to go underwater in caves to solve a salmon mystery. They had to put on gear and follow the salmon, which they said were seemingly swimming through mountains near Bella Bella. The Great Bear Rainforest, which is known for grizzly bears and towering cedars, the little secret watershed near Bella Bella on the central coast, is also being distinguished as a place where salmon swim through mountains. It's spectacular something out of a Tolkien novel. Ian McAllister, Pacific Wild, said the sur- subterranean passages used by the salmon the reach their spawning grounds. Salmons make it into the caves, and then the stream just disappears the mountainside. I thought, what's going on in there? McAllister's colleagues donned gear and unraveled ropes this summer to follow the slow-moving stream close to 100 meters into the marble rock before turning back. I thought we'd go through water, then into a dry cave, but it's all underwater, the labyrinth of marble tunnels in caverns. What's really amazing is we found all these coho salmon hiding away in the back of this cave, cave in the side of this mountain. Remarkable. About one kilometer upstream from its estuary in the Pacific Ocean, the stream flows beneath a fantastic natural bridge formed by erosion. About 50 meters later, it forms a six meter deep pool before disappearing the mountain marble. Feels like you're diving through a marble church in Europe somewhere. Big domes or marble on the roof have been chiseled over thousands of years. The marbles form a limestone karsk, perhaps the most fragile landscape on the earth. Limestone in the cave system originated hundreds of million years ago.
1: None of the video showed any of the uh, formations, though. Of- slag tights, columns, or any of that. I was going to comment, it looked pretty plain Jane till I
0: looked at this. Yeah, the farther upstream, about 200 meters in the pool, the water emerges, and the mountains flowing up to the surface. So, the, so they didn't make it all the way through. Oh, they went in 100 meters in the marble rock before turning back. Well, they need some cave divers. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I could, I would do it, but get somebody who can and go all the way through. Sounds like it'd be cool though, wouldn't it? Now, they had to know that one through. I mean, I'm sure they've done, uh, like, dye tests, do they put dye in the water and see where it comes out?
1: I—it's uh, hard to tell, but I'm quite sure those guys were cave divers, haven't certified to, to have done what they did.
0: Yeah, yeah, you would think they would have to, but I'm just thinking at the distance they said 100 meters. 100 meters is not far for a cave diver.
1: No, but you wouldn't want to go in there without light and a rope, or you're lying back.
0: Oh, certainly, yeah, and that—but that's something a cave diver would be experienced and prepared for. International Union of Conservation of Nature in 1997 stated caves and cars are especially vulnerable and probably more so than most other land resources. Huh, interesting. I want more video. And then, you know, they're saying that scuba divers are actually good for the economy.
1: Well, even locally, how much do we spend in Niles eating every weekend? <laughs> or wherever we're at. I mean, we ate in Pawpaw last week. And well, we didn't drink anything, but we eat a lot. Yeah,
0: yeah the, our, the, our particular group is not known for the heavy drinking, but you add some of those drinking divers and you can really go into it. Uh, but you, know, you say how how much? I mean, you figure ten twenty dollars a person on average, and that's just that after dinner meal.
1: That's well, uh, coffee and soup, and
0: yeah, and then you had to travel to get there, and you had to get gas, and you and know, the free and, drink on the way home. Yep. So they're saying nine hundred twenty four million was put into the Gladstone economy. This is out of Australia. More than one point seven five million Australian tourists flocked to Southern Great Barrier Reef last year, representing an increase of eleven and a half percent in the year prior. So in the UK, they were saying it was down. In Australia, it's up. A surge of 413,000 additional visitors from southern Queensland contributed to the increase, according to National Vis- Visitor Survey by the Tourism Research Australia released this week. They said that the numbers increase showed that tourism could be a driving force in central Queensland economy. Just from southern Queensland alone, we have an increase of 20% in visitors. Domestic tourism, a big business, and brought in 924.1 million to our region last year. People coming in here make huge financial contributions to our economy and help provide sustainable employment for locals. He said the survey also revealed an increase in 10.2% in holiday travel and 31.5% in the business sector. It's people being proud of where they live and enjoying what we have to offer that gives us such great results. The average tourism spends an average four hundred ninety seven dollars and five cents per person in Southern Great Barrier <coughs> Reef compared to one thousand one hundred and sixty two dollars in uh what was that wit Sundays and six eighteen in Sunshine Coast. so they're also saying they're cheap makes sense to me, yeah it makes sense to somebody else, some someplace else because they are also trying to get in on the act. National Marine Sanctuary would be a boost to the area. This is, uh, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker officially submitted a nomination process to NOAA on behalf of the citizens of the state of Wisconsin begin the process of bringing a national marine sanctuary to our area. Post-sanctuary we would include a 60-mile stretch of Lake Michigan running from two rivers to Port Washington to a post-sanctuary, in the lakeshore would encompass 875 square miles area along Lake Michigan coastline. A marine sanctuary in Manitowoc would allow our citizens and visitors to experience the power and beauty of Lake Michigan protect its rich marine history through research, education, and resource protection. And he goes on to say other things that politicians say. I'm uh, just curious, though. Don't the if, citizens
1: already have the ability to experience the power and beauty of Lake Michigan without it being a sanctuary? You need the sign.
0: You have to have a sign that oh, says... Okay, I'm sorry. I'm
1: just under- <laughs> the the sign, That's not something to do with government <laughs> Well, they they provide the sign, right? Yeah, I, they said each Marine
0: well, Sanctuary will have a visitor center, so somebody who, who builds stuff will make some money, to educate the public about the history of the sanctuary. These centers draw tourism educators and scientists to
2: the area. Who's going to fund the visitor center?
0: Well, that, that it's it's going to be a federal. They're, and they oh. use as an example Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary in Lake Huron. Designated in 2000 to protect the nationally significant collection of shipwrecks, brings more than 70,000 visitors annually to the visitor center in the community of about 10,000 residents. This sanctuary helps impact 92 million in sales, 35.8 million in personal income to residents, and 51.3 million in value add and 1,704 jobs.
1: I'm sorry, can you tell me again how they protect the wrecks? <laughs> well,
0: uh-huh. I want to know.
1: That's a key point. I'm just curious. How Would we he...
0: still go diving in Thunder Bay if there was not the National Marine Sanctuary?
1: Uh, let me let me think really hard on that. Yeah, probably. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's done some good thing for promotion. It's a nice museum, but it's like anything a politician does; they're going to claim credit for everything that of any good that happens.
2: Did you hurt yourself thinking about that, Mac?
1: <laughs> Sorry,
2: that I mean, you were thinking about it so hard. Did you hurt yourself?
1: I almost. So,
0: Wisconsin's trying to get that National Historic designation. So, they're saying Visitor's of the Marine Sanctuary wouldn't stop at the Visitor Center and then leave. They would stay in the area to learn more about the sanctuary, surrounding area. A sanctuary along the coast would also be able to shop at the Smithsonian affiliated Wisconsin Maritime Museum to learn about the maritime history and climb aboard the USS Cadot. Kaboa. while well, Manitowoc, these visitors could also rent kayaks at the Manitowoc Marina, take recreational fishing trips to Lake Michigan or spend the day enjoying the downtown historic district. The sanctuary would boost tourism and encourage visitors to spend more time in the city.
1: I you know, I think it's a good idea. We should do something like that in Michigan, like Lake Huron maybe or maybe Lake Erie, what do you think?
0: Okay, well that's a good segue, Mac. Lake Erie could be a national maritime sanctuary. I'll be down. <laughs> okay, where'd my, where'd my article go? It's coming up. Get all the gerbils pedaling their bikes. Lake Erie could become a national marine sanctuary. At a public meeting Tuesday, Erie County Executive Kathy Dahlkemper Kemper said she thinks that Erie is a perfect candidate for such a designation. We have millions of people going all across Interstate 9. You find more ways to bring them into our community. That means more business, very business, and just a greater impact to CUNY in general. NOAA will not look at our application unless we have a strong grassroots support from the residents of the Erie County, our country and their region. So it's what we're trying to gauge. The sanctuary would be mostly around our cultural assets. The shipwrecks the history. We have seagoing vessels that would be fishing or historical. War of eighteen twelve and really utilizing that as many ways to bring tourism and economic development into our region.
1: And just question again, I'm I'm curious. I'm I'm glad we have them here to protect our cultural history. I think that's what they the big one was cultural assets to history. We need NOAA to protect our history. Well, is this,
0: so what do you get with this? I mean, they say, say that each of these has a building. So you, you somehow are able to get NOAA to put in this building, which when we say NOAA, it means we pay taxes so that it comes in. uh, says, uh says, we focus on things like education, outreach programs, or search and monitoring, resource protection, the whole suite. So in many ways, sanctuaries like national parks, but they're all underwater. Now, what is that going to restrict? I mean, if you make it a national park, what are you not going to be able to do? Well, I know
1: that if you look at the National Marine Sanctuaries Act from 2000, uh, I know they'll define the standards of the sanctuary. They'll talk about the prohibited activities and how they will enforce those prohibitive activities from taking place. They'll talk about the regulations, the special use permits, uh, things like
2: that.
0: So that would be my question if I go to one of these meetings would be, what are we doing now in the water that th- that will no longer be allowed?
2: Yeah, uh, don't ask.
0: You know, do, does, like, uh, so we got the, was it party time boat out of St. Joe? So let's mm-hmm. say that sanctuary was right there off off St. Joe. Can they go out and fish? with well, You want to know the what the
1: findings are? It says, Congress finds that the National Historical Historica has recognized the importance of protecting special areas of its public domain These efforts have been directed most exclusively to land areas above the high water mark. Certain areas of the marine environment possess conservation, recreational, ecological, historical, scientific, educational, cultural, archeological, aesthetic qualities, which give them special, national, and in some cases, international significance. We need to control the effects of particular activities which have led to enactment of resource-specific legislation. These laws cannot, in all cases, provide a coordinated and comprehensive approach to the conservation and management of the special areas of the marine environment, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Again, I'm just a curmudgeon, so go for it.
0: Well, I'm I'm trying to think of what the benefit is. Is this a real benefit, or is this a gimmick? I mean, if you look at everybody who's doing it, they're saying, we want to do it because there's money. You know, we're going to, you're going to get people to come. They're going to come and look, and they're going to go, oh, look at that. They're called the Great Lakes. <laughs> you can see them. They're amazing on their own. It's like, you know, the Grand Canyon. What? It, 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 to me, it just goes back to what are you signing into when you do this? If you want to go and put mills off the coast there because you think it's a good, good way to get some energy, is it now going to be illegal because now it's a sanctuary?
1: They give more control over the population of what you can do and can't do because it's their area now. You have to have their permission to do something. Yeah. I mean, seriously, I, I don't mean that negative, but it's true. It, they, it says provide authority to them for comprehensive, coordinated conservation and management of the areas and all activities affecting them in a manager which, manner which complements existing regulatory authorities.
0: You know, honestly, Unless there was a specific benefit and it was isolated to a very small area, I would not want one. I, I again back to the St. Joe example, I don't want one out there. We can say perfectly well what we want to have happen in that water or not happen in that water. Why do I need to have a federal authority tell me what we want to do and not want to do?
1: I personally do not see the value. No, it's like... It's a special project that some people make money off of, more regulations, that I do not believe are necessary. So you're having a vast area controlled by a few. Yeah,
0: I I don't think it's really needed. I mean, unless there's something unique. Like say you had five warships that all sunk in the same spot and they're all in recreational diver depths, and we're going to put a pier out so all the dive boats can connect to it real easily and we'll have a museum which documents the life of them. Uh, You know, maybe you could make a case for that. But to go take a big swath of... Of it, you know, or you had some unique area that was having problems that needed some sort of protection, and they were willing to provide the resources for it. But I, I don't don't see that.
1: What do you get from your national parks? Well,
0: to me, national parks are a little bit different because at one point, national parks were probably land nobody else wanted. But you know, Teddy Roosevelt did a lot with grabbing the creating the park national park system, and that was swaths of land that you say, okay, we're going to keep these unique. Uh, we're going to make certain portions of them available to people to get out and to use them. And then the rest of it will just kind of hold. And, Area
1: management of the populace to do areas that they want to control. But,
0: but the difference was they had to buy those or they were they remained federal property uh, that was never granted when the you know, when they did, you know, land rushes. So to me, that's a little different. I mean, if you're going, to, if the if they're going to go out and buy it and then say, "Okay, we're making this park," that's one thing. And we've got national parks all over around here, which I, I they, enjoy. They
1: close them down when they feel that it's being overburdened with people. They close them down when they say budgetary concerns. Say we can't afford to have a guard there to let you in because you're going to mess up the place.
0: Yeah, that was my favorite. I
1: think that happened before. Yeah, maybe last year or so.
0: Yeah. Now, maybe that needs to be another special episode.
1: I'm sure that we'll have somebody out there that can educate us, curmudgeons, to really give us the benefits of this.
0: Well, and we have something even a little bit closer to home. There's a plan to invest $24.7 million in Michigan recreational projects and land, an expansion of the River Raisin. That is that raisin?
1: Yes, raisin. So yeah. River Raisin, the cry. Remember the raisin. Don't you remember that? I don't. I don't that's remember the
0: raisin. I, cool. I know the... Uh, What uh heard it through the grapevine raisins.
1: (laughs) That's where Custer's from, you know. (laughs) River Raisin? Yeah, it was right there uh, at the park there, right there across from where he used to live.
0: Okay. So this is an expansion of the the River Raisin National Battlefield in Monroe, an adventure park in Oakland County Grove Township groveland township and more improvements for the bell isle and other two parks in detroit are just a few of the 69 projects getting the green light from the natural resource trust fund the fund which gets its money from oil and gas royalties paid to the state approved 24.7 million worth of development acquisition Projects to create and expand recreational opportunities around the lake. So the River Raisin Project, which has the biggest ap- appropriation from the fund of nearly $5 million, will purchase land next to the battlefield to be used to better connect the site with the city of Monroe and create a peace garden, according to Dan Swallow, Director of Economic Community Development, Moreau. Now, Moreau is right there where... Uh, our good buddy uh, Rich Sinowick of Divers Incorporated in the podcast Diver's Sink. Uh, that's right in his backyard. We've been uh, planning this for a long time. We want to tie in the national park with the community. The battlefield, which is designated, dedicated in the national park in 2010, commemorates the battle at Frenchtown during the War of 1812. In Wayne County, 300,000 is slated for Belle Isle, which I think used to be an amusement park. The state took it over in 2014 to provide a Canoe and kayak launches in the Detroit River and Lake Muscadie. Pedestrian routes to the launches, picnic sites, and parking lot improvements, and restroom building. Two other $300,000 grants will be used to make improvements at the Coleman-Young Playground and Doreas Playfield, both in detroit the biggest project for oakland county is 2.9 million for the purpose of land in groveland township along i-75 which currently houses a couple of gravel mines the land be used to develop an adventure park across the street from groveland oaks country park a county park including off-road vehicle mountain biking and running trails in later years of development include a water feature for scuba diving water skiing and wakeboarding the vision can you do that all in the same can you water ski and i guess so the vision would be potentially some of the sand and gravel extraction could continue to create royalties for the DNR, and if the money could be used to help for the development of the water feature at the park. So they're buying gravel pits that are currently being used.
1: I don't think they're currently being used. There's a couple of old pits there when they started doing the highways and bypasses. Uh huh. There's quite a few quarries left over from that that are.
0: Yes, because potentially some sand and gravel extraction could continue. So they make it sound like it's it's going. But I want, you know, so they they're, they got a big bucket of money they're giving away? Is that what it is?
1: I always think it's funny you get the free money, but where did that free money come from?
0: Well, yeah, This is just every time you fill your gas tank, you pay an extra. Which, by the way, everybody, watch your local states and governments. They're all raising your gas tax. Oil's at an all-time, I uh, say an all-time low, an all-time in the last few years low. So they're going to quickly add some tax onto it. So in a couple of years when it's $7 a gallon, we'll be going, what, what happened?
1: That's when you go back over the border to uh, Indiana and get your gas.
0: Uh, everybody's going to do it because they all want the money. They're, 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 they, they mandated everybody had to be higher efficiency for uh, vehicle mileage, and then it hurts because they're not making as much off taxes.
1: Well, I always like what they're saying right now. The prices are low because demand is low.
0: Uh, a little bit of it. I think there's some... You
1: think so?
0: Uh, well, demand versus capacity. I don't think demand is any lower than it's ever been. I just think that we've brought capacity online. And uh, a, a lot of the gas industry is speculation and emotion.
1: That's where you get the the price wings. Speculation yeah. and emotion.
0: Yeah. And there's some things I want to know, you know, because we're, we're in this, you know, conflict with Russia for whatever reason, and... You know, this is one ways of destabilizing them is is you know they have a weakness where most of their economy is oil based. So we've you know you know we're producing as nearly as much oil as they are. So we're able to uh,
1: we are exporting more than we receive that. Yeah, which makes no sense. If we're coming self sufficient, it's all it's all about the money. Yeah. Period.
0: Yeah. So that so that's going on. So since the trust was started in nineteen seventy six, more than one billion has been spent in recreational development. The fund has been approved by voters a number of times over the years but it has been unsuccessful attempts in recent years to modify how the money is distributed. I wonder if, how much is in the fund? Do they say?
1: I uh, don't. Did you look at the temporary budget that was passed that'll get you through February before the yellow screen?
0: No, I, I knew if I did I was going to bleed out my nose.
1: I I did a little bit. I had a couple of comments I put on Facebook on <laughs> okay. that. Okay.
0: So here here's a soapbox <laughs> section. So what'd you find? What what was in there?
1: No, no, I'm just talking here. They're talking it's a trillion dollar plus, you know, bill, which is passed, but you look at the last freaking minute items they put in there, I think they used to call them pork. Uh huh. You look at the billions are in this case, million well, billions and billions. I mean, a million is nothing to them.
0: No, they they, they have no concept of money, how much they're spending, how much they're overspending. It doesn't doesn't matter. They they're, they don't care. It, it's
1: just interesting to go through the bill and look what they need the money for and some of the extra little porky items that got put in there.
0: Well, and all the porky items is, it's all about how many people do we have for the vote? What do we want? What's the big issue? And then they keep they have, okay, well, if we're going to get this guy involved, we got to go and fund his whatever. And right. it's. it's, I,
1: it's I, I just looked at one particular part. I'm just curious. I looked under the immigration aspect of it to see how much money they increased certain funds for, for undocumented, which means illegal, uh, people for food, medical. It's it was like, I wish I had that money. We should spend it on our veterans or something. Oh, yeah. People, yeah. People or, who uh,
0: gave their, their lives illegal. and, yeah.
1: Undocumented, excuse me. I'm not sure why undocumented is a better word than calling it what it is illegal.
0: Well, because what undocumented does is it, it implies that just wait around long enough and we'll get do amnesty again.
1: Uh, but anyway, it's interesting. Billions and millions. Yep. Hey, government don't care. It's nope. your money.
0: <laughs> They're spending it every day. Uh, so that does <laughs> it for the news. We do have some photos of the week. Uh, this one's a little bit of a follow up, Mac. Uh, take a look at that kayak.
1: Yes, I did. <laughs> Looks just like mine.
0: Except yours doesn't come up to a hundred foot boat all that often, does it?
1: No, nah, just this time. I think those pictures pretty nice, aren't they? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and, and and what this is, this is a a photo tour of the 110 year old ship. Let's see what's the name of it again.
1: Uh, this is the one we talked about a couple of months ago. Remember? Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I remember. And we had some photos then taken by different people. Yeah. Uh, but this one has more photos, if you don't get distracted by the photos on the side. Uh, let's see what they call the ship. Uh, crud. It, it, it's going to be one of those where it's like eight or ten pages you got to scroll through. But what I liked about it is that somebody actually spent some time and got a little bit of the historical photos related to the vessel. I get these damn ads.
1: S-S-V-E-N-T-N-O-R. What was it? S Ventor.
0: Ventnor.
1: Ventnor. Ventnor.
0: Yeah. And they show, they show one, uh, photo of the ship, uh, going under the, uh, uh, looks like, is that the bridge in New York City? I think that's New York City. They're showing there. I mean, the Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. It might be the Brooklyn. Uh, and that it said it was later the ship was used in both world wars. Edison, Thomas Edison used a vessel to test communications equipment. And it was called the steam yacht Celt. And then she was a USS Sachem in 1917 to 1919.
1: There's a couple of those pictures, that stuff looks like marijuana growing in that boat hole. <laughs> I would be
0: surprised. And then I, they even the boat was even look, in a Madonna video in the '80s. Yeah, they're
1: not looking; they're harvesting.
0: Yeah, but in if you look at the the the, the air shot, the fo, uh, from above, how did they get it back there? Did they dredge it out to bring it up to that little creek? Mm-hmm. And they said that uh, you can still get to the vessel today, but you're likely to. You, there's a chance you're going to get run out. You know, and who owns it? Well, is that, is that, you think who's running them out? I'm, I don't trying, know. I'm trying to remember when we did, when we had the article before, somebody had owned it and was going to do something with it. And then it just, so was it abandoned, you know, or is this, you know, adjacent to this, this guy's property? And that's just where it ended up. He couldn't do with it what he wanted to.
1: Well, as long as whoever owned it now is responsible for getting rid of that eyesore. Yeah.
0: Well, and then this next one, uh, is a photo. So if, if you're looking for something to get, uh, your fishermen friends, you know, say they're really into fish. This might be something if you can tolerate the uh, the people holding the holding the photos. This is a, a calendar that's out of German. It's the erotic German carp calendar. Uh, the Daily Dot says this erotic German carp calendar is the worst Christmas gift imaginable. But I think they're wrong. It's a calendar full of nude women cuddling giant slimy fish. He says, Is this the worst gift or the best gift? They said the reason it's a best gift for the rest of the recipient's life you will he or she will be able to tell a story that he received an erotic German carp calendar for Christmas. That story is a gift that will never get old or stop giving. It's the only gift you can get you can be sure the recipient doesn't already have.
1: It only cost
0: nineteen Euros. It's in Europe and it's full nudity, thus Fancy and sophisticated, there's a 0.06% chance recipient will actually like it and be thankful for the rest of their life of reducing it to new sexual fetish. (laughs) Okay, then we also have the, see, I I thought you guys would would go for that. See, I've already already got them ordered on the way, so. See, that's what we need. That's how how we'll fund the show. We need to come up with a calendar like that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Have pictures of us in the water. No, I was not. I was not advocating. No. That would be the flip side.
2: Mm. <laughs> send us money, or we'll send it to you.
0: Yeah,
1: there, there you go. Extortion. It's plain envelope to your office.
0: We'll send you an email. Name? We have a package with your name on. It. It'll be delivered in five days, unless oh, that'd, see, that'd be good blackmail material, wouldn't it?
1: No, no, that's a bad word, blackmail. No, no, no.
0: What's the political correct term for blackmail?
1: Enticement.
0: <laughs> Enticement. Encouragement. Your
1: to pay me money.
0: Yeah. And then we have a video of the week. We we won't play it here, but we'll have the link in the show notes. Uh, somebody from uh, Boston did a a parody of the uh, musical song and from Frozen to raise money for the aquarium. Uh, and she actually, when she's singing, says Boston like somebody from the from the Northeast. So that she says Boston, correct. And, uh, what makes it good for scuba diving? She talks about getting in the water and, uh, wetsuits and says, said, water never bothered me anyways, is one of the lines. So, worth watching. She had a pretty good voice. I was surprised. Well, that does it for scuba news. We ran that one to the ground again. Let's see, Mac, did you get any diving in this week?
1: Uh, yeah. Paw-paw.
0: Pa-pa. How many times? Well, say again? How many times did you get in the water? No, I only got in one time
1: last week. I only one time? Yep. No. Everybody else was working. I, you know how that goes. It's a bitch. Yeah. Couldn't have to zip my suit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that they were going to uh, go out and test some
1: dry suits. Yes, they did. Um, Ken and uh, Larry took their brandy new ease out, and uh, they've got to work on their Ring cuffs a little bit, get those a little more, uh, leak free. Uh, Mary Beth went to the dry side. I think she's a convert. Uh, we still gotta tweak on her weight a little bit to be able to keep her down with the new suit. But the temperature wasn't bad, about 38 degrees on the water temperature. Air temperature was about 38 degrees. Uh, visibility was six, seven feet. If you had a light, it was more. And it was fun. We went to the Board of Trade afterwards and fed our faces. Ah. Help the economy.
0: Yeah. And the Board of Trade is not an investment brokerage. It's a restaurant.
1: That is correct. It's right near where we're going to go, and we'll be there again uh, Saturday. Saturday. Saturday.
0: So this is going to be the test of the new dry suits take two.
1: Take two, yeah.
0: yeah. So they well, should have...
1: better to do it now than when you get under the ice or in the river.
0: Yeah, well, because we've got the, the traditional New Year's Eve dive coming up, and everybody wants to get this worked out before then.
1: Yeah, that's only,
0: what, 14 days? God, is it hard to believe it's that time already?
1: Yeah.
0: And then, uh, Jim, Mary Beth, myself, and, and who who else did we have there, Jim? Uh, Mark. Mark. We went to the River Niles on Sunday, and we got there, and the water conditions actually looked pretty good. I had all my gear, but, uh, Mark really wasn't feeling too great, so he decided that he really didn't want to go. And unless somebody really wanted to go, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to go in, and, uh, one of my reasons for coming down there, again, other than to, to do some bottle grubbing, was my dive flag. I had lost a few weeks before, and it, it had shown up, uh, caught out on some, uh, I don't know, some debris there in the river. So I was planning on going and recover it, and Jim graciously uh, offered to go into the water and, and get it for me. He he ended up doing a, a what do you call that? That's a yes. drift,
2: drift snorkel? Yeah, Sur- uh, drift, a surface drift.
0: Yeah, surface drift from uh, there down to the Marmont, and uh, was able to recover. Uh, I d- I drove down the pickup spot and picked them up down there. Uh, but it was good. It was uh, yeah, er- everybody you know had enough people show up to to make an evaluation. But you know it's it's again that be time of year where you get the sniffles and stuff, so easy to call it.
1: Always smart to say no or know when to say no. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and we've been getting some good diving in. I, I, we've got a bit in I think there were some times in the summer where we went a month and nobody seemed to get in. This year? Yeah, maybe it was just me. <laughs> <laughs> now, I like that uh, on the on the com site, Mac. Yeah. You, did a, you did a slideshow.
1: Yes, I did. I tried something different.
0: Now, is the slideshow done within the site, or did you do, use a tool from someplace else? Actually, it was by accident, and I used whatever was there on the site, and it worked. Yeah, it looks, it looks nice. I like it. Yeah, and I now did. we have
1: to post all the pictures at once. You hit it, and it just scrolls, scrolls through. Yeah, it and, doesn't.
0: It uh, doesn't it's not pretty nice. Yeah, it doesn't look so overwhelming, because sometimes when we get you, you get 20 photos in a post, and yeah. you're like, oh, gosh, and it's got to all load. But this looks nice, and you got the captions in there. I, I, I think it. It looks good. Okay.
1: Well, anytime people are out, if they take pictures, I can put them on the site. Otherwise, it looks like I do all the picture taking. But send me pictures, guys.
0: Yeah, I need to send you. I I think I've got some pictures from this last week. I've got photos. It takes me about a week from the time I take the photo. I I either post the photo as I'm taking it or it takes me a week because my two workflows. One one is instant and the other is it takes a while.
1: Jake took the last ones. Uh, he graciously gave me the disc so I could play with it that same day. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I need to do, uh, what we need to do is have, uh, maybe this is an idea. I'll talk to you offline, Mac, about how we can do it. But I got some ideas on how we could, we could streamline it.
1: Yeah. And, and it's always nice when we have surface people who take pictures for us. really makes a difference. Because everybody likes to see a picture of themselves playing around the water.
0: Yeah, Yeah. And if you've got any photography or videography experience you know drop me a line cuz i've got some projects that we're going to be doing so i'm i'm looking for identifying some talent now so that when it comes time to do it we've we've got everything all lined up uh anybody have anything they want to plug before we end it we we're we're pushing 90 minutes
2: now no just going to try to get wet this weekend
0: yeah so we've got a couple dives playing you've got uh papa Mar- uh mac
1: yeah papa's on saturday 10 o'clock. okay Toy box will be there with eaters.
0: Oh, you can't
2: beat that.
1: Okay.
0: You plan on going out Sunday?
2: I'm gonna to try to get out Sunday if there's anybody who will join me. Where are you going Sunday? Sunday. Afternoon. Same place.
0: Same place. You know, I'm, I may again. I'll i I'll just have to check. I'll know a little okay. bit closer.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I can make Sunday, but uh if you're going out on Saturday or uh following monday since you're not working that day you know
2: that's a possibility
1: because the weather's supposed to be pretty good yep that's
2: a possibility
0: okay well you guys ready
1: yes sir we are
0: okay so here we go husband and wife are returning from new york from a diving vacation in key west after diving for 10 hours they stop at a nice hotel to catch a few hours sleep and get back on the road after five hours of sleep, they check out and are handed a bill for $450. The husband explodes, demanding to know why they're being charged so much. The clerk explains it's standard charge for the room. Unsatisfied, the husband, the husband demands to see the manager, who appears, confirms that they have already been told, and explains, we have an Olympic-sized swimming pool available that you could have used. But, but it didn't state that... It is here and you could have used it, explained the manager. We have all the top acts from Broadway and a Vegas play here regularly and you could have seen them for free, says the manager. But we didn't. We only wanted to sleep, replies the husband. They were there and you could have, responds the manager again. No matter what the manager says, response to the husband is always, but we didn't. Finally, the exasperated husband agrees reluctantly to pay and writes a check for $100. The manager looks and says, sir, the charge is $450 minimum per night and the check is only for $100. The husband responds, I charge you 350 for sleeping with my wife. But I didn't exclaim, the manager. Well, the husband replies, she was here and you could have.
1: Hey, worked for me. <laughs> I
0: thought for maybe a second I dropped the connection.
1: Jim, were you injured on that one? Oh,
0: uh,
2: that one hit below the
0: belt.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.
2: And remember, we did not harm any jellyfish balls today. So we did think about eating a few of them.
1: I'll send you some rubber bands.
2: Well, I was more into jelly rolls than jelly balls.
1: might agree with you there. Call recording has been completed.